All right. Welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. We are continuing to read High Risers by Ben Austin. And we are on Chapter 2, The Reds and the Whites. Dolores Wilson. The Wilsons were one of the first families in 1956 to move into their 19-story Cabrini, Cabrini Extension high-rise. They were assigned an apartment on the 14th floor, and everything smelled of fresh paint. Dolores had never been that high in the sky before. She forced herself to the edge of their, quote, sidewalk in the air, end quote, the walkway outside the apartment, and clutched the chest-high fencing as she peered down. The cars looked no bigger than toys. Quote, I almost fainted, end quote, she would recall. That was the first day. Quote, then after a while you grow used to everything, end quote. Soon she was delighting in her lordly view of Chicago's ripple skyline and the blue-gray blur of the lake disappearing into the horizon. Just as the CHA had advertised, she stretched out on what they called the ramp, enjoying the breeze, while her children played alongside her. Flies and mosquitoes didn't reach 14 stories, nor did all the sounds of the street. She started to feel sorry for her neighbors who filled the apartments on the floors below. Like all the new Cabrini Towers, the Wilson is the Wilson's building was known impersonally by its address, 1117 North Cleveland, which was painted in a somber, blocky script above the front entrance. The architect Lawrence Amstadler had wanted to install metal numerals and letters, explaining that it would actually cost less to do so. But he was told the metal gave off the appearance of being pricier. Quote, public housing was considered charity, end quote, he said. Quote, it had to look economical, end quote. The subsidy had the tricky task of ensuring that those with too little received only just enough. That was fine by Dolores. Quote, it was the projects, end quote, she say by which she meant it was clean and safe and spectacular to behold. They now have had five full rooms with a large living room, a kitchen, and their own private bathroom. She and Hubert slept in one bedroom, the boys in another, and the girls in a third. There was a fridge, a stove, and hot and cold water. The walls were plumb, the floors and ceilings unbreached. <clears throat> I think it's interesting where they say uh, public housing was considered charity, and they talked about how they didn't want the number, the letters and the numbers to look as if they cost more than they really did. And I think that, again, gets you into some of the elitist perception that exists in our society where they didn't want people to think that more money was being spent to help these uh, people from lesser means than was actually spent. And and again, that's because of the stigma that exists in our society. And I think that that's something that stands out while reading this as well is the stigma that exists for people who are poor or people who are working class as if there's some type of condemnation on a person for not being rich or not being wealthy or not having a certain amount of money in the society. And predominantly. Those people have been uh, people of color. Those people at this point in time were people of color and immigrants. Her mother would phone when the temperature dropped into the teens, worried that Dolores might be inside the apartment barefoot. Dolores would, Dolores would hush Hubert as he shouted from the other room that she didn't have on any shoes. But this wasn't a Southside tenement. 
The heat in their building pulsed through the floors and enveloped them. Outside, the frigid air rolling in off the lake or the prairies blasted the high-rise. But inside, the temperature exceeded 80 degrees. On the most penetrating winter days, with ice layering on the ramps and the wind roaring like a jet engine, Dolores still cracked her window. And they paid just a small, fixed amount for utilities and a monthly rent that was based on their annual income. The interior walls, too, were solid cinder block. If a fire broke out in any kitchen in the building, the flames couldn't go any farther than that apartment. Dolores would demonstrate by entering each room and shutting the door. Quote, it was fireproof, end quote, she would say. Quote, the whole thing was fireproof. Even the smoke couldn't get in there. It was like heaven, end quote. The comparison turned out to be a common one. Something as elemental as a modest home seemed divine after the damnation of its absence. Quote, it's heaven here, end quote, a different mother who moved into one of the other newly built red Cabrini high-rises told the press. Quote, we used to live in a three-room basement with four kids. It was dark, damp, and cold, end quote. J.S. Furis, one of Elizabeth Wood's, quote, do-gooders, end quote, at the CHA, headed up the agency's research and statistic division and had overseen the 1950 survey of the Cabrini Extension Area. For a book of interviews, he titled, When Public Housing Was Paradise, Furis collected dozens of similar testimonials from early occupants of Chicago's public housing. Quote, it's almost like I died and went to heaven, end quote, one tenant said about moving into a low-rise development. Quote, we felt it was just paradise, end quote, another resident told him. Quote, we felt this was just the greatest housing that we could live in, end quote. In Dolores' basement apartment on Prairie, if the shared toilet didn't flush or a circuit shorted, she could call her landlord. But he might just as soon put them out as fix the place. At Cabrini, the government owned her home. There was a city agency responsible for answering her request. Her building had a team of janitors on call around the clock. Groundskeepers maintained the gardens and lawns that circled her tower like a moat. And I think one of the things I would like to point out as well is that everybody who was living in the type of conditions that Dolores had escaped didn't escape them because Cabrini Green had, or because Cabrini was built. And so I think it's important to. Uh, to remember that even though Dolores is no longer dealing with these things, these type of things are still being dealt with by other people who occupy those tenements. Dolores discovered, too, that she liked living around a lot of people. Her building and its conjoined 19-story twin, 1,119 North Cleveland, together held 262 apartments and almost 1,000 residents. Towers of the same cross-hatched red brick faced her on all sides. Quote, the more the merrier, end quote, Dolores would say. Quote, it was 19 floors of friendly, caring neighbors. Everyone watched out for each other. No gangs, drugs, or shootings, end quote. One of her sisters moved to a residential street on the west side, and it was so quiet a cat slinking in the bushes would, bushes would scare Dolores. Quote, if everybody is laughing and happy or fighting, I know there's life out there, end quote, she said. All the families in the high-rises had gone through the same careful screening, and most of the households had two parents at home. People kept their doors unlocked and dropped by one another's apartments when they needed to borrow sugar or a cup of milk. They looked after one another's children. Dolores' next-door neighbors were Puerto Rican, and she got along with them great, even though the aromas of their cooking wafted onto the ramp. Quote, I like garlic, end quote, she say, quote, but I don't like the smell of it, end quote. 
Dolores became close friends with a woman named Martha who lived on the second floor and had five children as well. They go on outings together, sometimes bringing along another girlfriend from the building who also had five kids. They play in the large playground, or they'd walk to Stewart Park or the Isham YMCA or to Pioneer Market. The three adults marching the 15 children. Quote, we look like a parade, end quote, Dolores said. In the mornings, thousands of people flushed out of the high rises on their way to work. Many had jobs at Montgomery Ward, the giant retailer and mail order cataloger, which was the neighborhood's largest employer. Oscar Meyer, an immigrant from Bavaria, had opened his business selling, quote, old world, end quote, sausages and Westphalia hams in Chicago in 1883. And five years later, moved to the corner of Sedgwick and Division, just across Seward Park from Dolores' building. The eight-story plant produced hot dogs and sliced lunch meats. Dozens of other small factories near the river made everything from turtle wax and tamales to tractors, donuts, comic books, and children's toys. Industries lined the neighboring boulevards, producing paint, radios, elevator parts, billboards, and doctor shows, shoes, and art supports. Others manufactured clothes, luggage, cameras, power plant equipment, picture frames, auto parts, and office supplies. A number of the Midwest's candy companies made their confections in the area, and Dolores and her children could taste the chocolate in the air. The neighborhood had an old settlement house funded by the city's welfare council called the Lower North Center, which had been housed in an 80-year-old building. When the Cabrini extension went up, it was rebuilt into a low-slum brick building the same color as the Reds, with classrooms, a nursery, meeting halls, and a gymnasium. CHA tenants used sewing machines there to learn dressmaking, and they went to the center to get coached for the civil service exam. Hubert held a number of different jobs and quit a number of them, too. Quote, why are you home so early? End quote. Dolores would ask him, knowing the answer. Quote, I just walked out. End quote. He'd reply, explaining they treated him unfairly. But the next morning he'd head out and land something new. One of their neighbors had walked into the Seaberg jukebox plant the same day he moved into his Cabrini apartment and was offered a position. Quote, when do you want me to start? End quote, he asked. Quote, right now, end quote, came the response. Only once, after Hubert had been laid off from a seasonal construction job, did the Wilsons consider going on welfare. But they thought they'd be forced to give up their car and television and other belongings before they qualified. Instead, they borrowed a little money from Dolores' parents, just enough to get by, and Hubert soon found work again. Eventually, he was hired by the CHA as a janitor. He joined the brigade of custodians moving each day among the 15 Cabrini high-rises, hauling trash, cleaning hallways and stairwells, and straightening up anything that was in disarray. And that brings us to a changing of the passage, or the changing of the theme within this chapter. What, the first thing that stands out to me is as they're speaking about the the conditions and the experiences that people were living in and that people were having uh, in the Cabrini extension, it makes me think about the book we read, Citizens, Cops and Power, and how they spoke about the idea of recovering versus discovering community, the ideas of thick community versus thin community. And just all the the different aspects of community that 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 book laid out for us, and how a lot of the uh, and and how this this specific community 
in the inception of it, in the genesis of it, uh, the community that was in Cabrini Green had had a lot of the characteristics that that book pointed out was needed to have community policing. And I don't mean community policing in the sense of the community working with the police, but in the sense of the community was generating the uh, the people within the community were generating what the value system were. Uh, the people within the community were looking out for one another. People felt comfortable enough to leave their doors unlocked. People were that lived on the Dolores lived on the 15th floor. She was going out of her way enough to uh, be, build a relationship with somebody who lived on the second floor. And uh, Dolores was talked about how you know Dolores is and her family is black and they live next door to a Puerto Rican family. And one of the things that was pointed out is how heterogeneity in communities, which is uh, people from different cultures, people from different ethnicities, nationalities, living in the same community together, how that can uh, work as a hindrance toward uh, building community and towards having a a closer, tighter-knit community. And we see how in this situation that wasn't the case, specifically because so many of these people have been living in such negative conditions and such bad conditions that being in in this, this brand new building that had, that was adequate or at least more closer adequate living conditions uh, made it so that, you know, it sort of brought out the best in the the people who were in this area. And it's important to remember that this is the genesis of this place being built, of this area being built. And so there's not as much of a need to fix things or to change things. And I would assume it means a lot to the political machine that set this building up for the, uh, the rollout of it to be looked at in a positive light. And so those are just some of the first thoughts that I have as they spoke about the the type of community that existed there. One of Dolores's new neighbors was also among Cabrini's most famous residents. Jerry Butler, the soul singer known as the Iceman, had been born in Sunflower County, Mississippi in 1939. And at his three and at Three, his parents left sharecropping in the Delta for work in the war industries in Chicago. They settled into a tenement just a block from the Francis Cabrini row houses, the family living in a three-room basement apartment with no hot water that sat squarely within the area detailed in the CHA's portrait of a Chicago slum. The law now gave priority in the new high-rise public housing to families clear from slum sites And after the Butlers' building was torn down to make way for the Cabrini Extension Towers, they moved into 1117 North Cleveland. While a student at Jenner, the local public school, Butler delivered newspapers on the Gold Coast, and at age 12, he had a job in a plastics company operating an injection molding machine from 4 o'clock p.m. until midnight. As a teenager, he also stuffed mattresses at a nearby factory. And one of his co-workers took him to the west side to sing at a basement ministry called the Traveling Souls Spiritualist Church. The minister was a mystic who says she communed with the spirit guy from among the dead. She also had a grandson, a pint-sized nine-year-old named Curtis Mayfield, who knew how to play the guitar and piano and who could sing in a high tenor that complemented the lower register of Butler's already sulky baritone. The kids formed part of a quartet the Northern Jubilee Gospel Singers, and began to tour spiritualist conventions. A couple of years later, Mayfield moved with his mother and siblings into a Cabrini Row house on Hudson Avenue with his front and backyard and private toilet 
It was luxurious after the rundown hotel where they'd been staying. Jerry and Curtis knew of Ramsey Lewis, who had grown up in the Cabrini Row houses and had already gone on to cut two records with his jazz trio. But they weren't into jazz. They sang doo-wop together outside the towers. They put on shows at the Lower North Center and practiced in the basement of Butler's High Rise and in the club room at the Seward Park Fieldhouse. By the benches in the park, a wino named Doug played an old guitar, producing a masterful sound, and the boys studied him for hours. Butler wanted to be a chef then, and he crossed Division Street, two blocks from his apartment, and signed up for culinary classes at Washburn Trade School. Many of the city's unions operated apprenticeship programs out of the high school, and professional chefs sometimes showed up to hire for their kitchens. Give me one second, I'm just trying to... Make sure we still, yep. All right. When Butler started as a freshman, he was one of only a handful of black students. Then as the school became fully integrated, the unions pulled their apprenticeships. And so then, and then that's something, I think that's important to point out. So we already see the effects of black people moving into an area, becoming, uh, beginning to live in an area, and the ripple effects that the that the city, the racist city government or the racist public, this was the uh, the union specifically, but these different institutions that were still heavily embedded in racism and heavily believed in segregation, that once black people started moving into certain areas, you see them begin to divest out of those areas. And so the first one of those divestments that's pointed out here is the divestment from the school system, the, div- the divestment of having apprenticeships at Uh, at these schools. And so there is it's no way to argue that this didn't affect directly affect the people that were living there, that that this this did not directly remove chances and remove opportunities from the people that were living there. People who already were dealing with a scarce amount of opportunities as it was. And so, again, I just think that's one of the things we want to be cognizant of as we're reading through this is seeing the the negative effects that black people began to deal with as they moved into different areas and how those areas began to become divested by institutions and by businesses and by organizations. Jerry sometimes bust tables as well at his uncle Johnny and Aunt Pearlie's restaurant next to Seward Park. Packed from morning through night with everyone from Irish cops and numbers runners to bus drivers, judges, and ministers, it was like a community roundtable for the ever-changing neighborhood. People his uncle knew from back home in Mississippi would make the journey up to Chicago, and he'd give them a job in the restaurant until they settled into something steadier. By then, Italians and African Americans had been living side-by-side in the area for decades, mostly peaceably, but sometimes not. In 1935, an Italian property owners' association took it upon itself to try to evict 4,700 black renters from the near north side. Father Gian Bastani of St. Benizi Parish defended the illegal acts. Quote, the landlords were protecting their property values as they had a right to do. End quote. Although the Sicilians he spoke for were manual laborers or shopkeepers, They come to the city and embrace the American dream of owning property. The rate of home ownership for first generation Italians in Chicago was twice that of native born whites. When the CHA was clearing the Little Hell slum in the 40s to make way for the Cabrini Row houses, a group of Italians refused to sell. 
They didn't want to sacrifice personally for the government's notion of the greater civic good. Initially, the Cabrini Row houses were to cover 55 acres, extending all the way from Chicago Avenue to Division Street. But the CHA had to scale the development back to 16 acres when it couldn't secure the land. And then one of the things that's important to point out here is we see how, as was pointed out in reading Letter from Birmingham Jail, how the clergy and how uh, religious groups in the church has capitulated and worked uh, uh, in coordination with racist ideology uh, and with people who have uh, racist beliefs. And so we see that here with the uh, with the priest that was defending these uh, attempted illegal acts. The chairman of the CHA under Elizabeth Wood was an African-American architect and businessman named Robert Taylor. One of the few black officials in city government, he had helped find a savings and loan on the South Side fund. He had helped found a savings and loan on the South Side, the rare banking establishment in Chicago to offer home loans to minority borrowers. He shared Wood's belief that the integration of public housing was a practical necessity as well as a moral one. A quarter million Chicago families lack safe and sanitary housing, with the greatest demand coming from the city's segregated black neighborhoods. Federal law dictated that new public housing developments couldn't change the existing racial makeup of a neighborhood, only match it. The CHA had at first avoided the trickiness of this, quote, neighborhood composition rule, end quote. Two New Deal era sites inherited by the agency were on vacant land in all white neighborhoods, and a third included a smattering of black families relegated to a corner of the complex with its own separate stairwell. When the Cabrini Row houses were completed, the surrounding area was 80 percent white and 20 percent black. And so the small development held to that quota. Black and Italian children played together in the parks and at the YMCA. They attended the same schools. Neighbors of different races joined up for block parties and the huge feast day celebrations of St. Dominic and St. Benizi. Quote. With an integrated project, we were all one big family, end quote. A white row house occupant recollected in When Public Housing Was Paradise, quote, it was a real village, end quote. The defender covered the opening of the row houses with uplifting images of middle class domesticity. A black family of four enjoying a first meal in their dining room. Two Cabrini mothers, one white, one black, in similar blouses and long skirts, their shoulders touching as they gaze into an oven. The caption explains that they are joined for a child's 12th birthday and that the mother is, quote, probably giving advice on how the birthday cake should be cooked. Or perhaps she is simply kibitzing as the women will do, end quote. Father Gian Bastini delivered a prayer at the Cabrini Row House's dedication. Within weeks, however, he was writing letters to Elizabeth Wood complaining that the social experiment there had failed because blacks were being placed, quote, on the same level in house to house with the white people. This is being resented by all. And I must add, in order to be candid with you, that I don't like it either. End quote. And there, that's your that's your priest, Father Gian Bastini. That's and again, we have seen regularly throughout American society that the church and priest and clergy, specifically white ones, uh, and even the ones who uh, even it Italian uh, immigrants who maybe at that moment did not opt in to being white. But as generations would pass, they would opt in to being white. And because they would come over here and find out that black people were relegated to the bottom rung of the society, they didn't want to be 
uh, looked at or viewed or have the perception that they were also on that bottom rung. And the way to do that was to uh, to mimic and duplicate the discrimination and mimic and duplicate the uh, stigmatization that they see mainstream white people doing or, or, or white people who have been born in America doing American whites doing. And so that's why you see this same type of echoing of, of racist sentiment to avoid being the part of the group at the on the bottom rung. Gian Bastini began to advertise the parochial school of St. Benizi as an all white alternative to the integrated Jenner. The neighborhood's two public parks set up separate hours for white and black children to use the facilities. Some in the community revived the terror of their parents' childhoods, calling themselves the black hand and attacking their neighbors. In April 1943, a group of whites shot into a Cabrini Row house occupied by a black family and several hundred people took to the streets as fights broke out. During the next months, more police were stationed at Cabrini than at any other Chicago housing development, as city officials feared that the near north side might erupt into a full-fledged race riot. The defender... Hopeful, the defender hopefully reported that amid the turmoil, 200 children at the row houses elected a 14 year old black youth to head their junior government. The headline declaring, quote, white kids rebuff hate, elect Negro boy mayor, end quote. The neat columns of the Cabrini row houses were bordered to the south by Chicago Avenue and to the west by Montgomery Ward's gargantuan two million square foot warehouse that curved where the Chicago River bowed. Directly to the east, several of the seven and ten story Cabrini high rises were positioned like chess pieces on a single tract of land hardly bigger than a square block. Across Oak Street to the north, 19 and 10 story towers rose up like a wall. The Reds line layer B heading north and division going west and Cleveland heading back south to Oak, completing a four sided bulwark that formed around the parkland between the buildings. Many row house residents saw the high rises not as an extension of their community, but as something separate. The distinctions weren't merely designed. The, the distinctions weren't merely design related. OK, and then I think we're going to do is going to end this episode here because I think they're going to get into. Oh, is it a little bit of a changing of a theme? Mm. Here, we'll keep we'll keep going. I think we got a little bit. It's gonna change the theme in about a page and a half, so we can push through this. By 1950, the population of the 25 blocks cleared to make way for the Cabrini Extension Towers had jumped to 80% black as older Italians moved out and younger families moved in. The CHA touted one of the new Cabrini high rises as its quote, international building, end quote, reporting that some 262 African American, Armenian, Chinese, Danish, Eskimo, German, Indian, Irish, Italian, Mexican, Polish, Puerto Rican, Scottish, Swedish, and Turkish families living there in, quote, harmony, friendship, and in peace, end quote. But overall, about 90% of the 1,900 families who moved into the 15 high-rises were African-American, the majority of them, like the Wilsons and the Butlers, two-parent, working class, and desperately in need of adequate housing. In Dolores' building, she knew of only one white family. The wife's name was also Dolores, and she used to sell her blood at Mount Sinai Hospital to make a little extra money. Unsettled by the shifting demographics, many white renters quit their row house apartments with a great number of them moving to the western suburbs. 
quote, I saw the atmosphere go down in Cabrini, end quote, said a white mother who lived in the row houses with her family until the first high rises opened. Quote, I saw it change from sort of an ideal little community into a place that you wanted to get out of, end quote. The CHA no longer gave war workers or veterans preference in the developments, and the agency felt compelled to push out families who exceeded the reduced income limits. Quote, be proud to move out so that a lower income family can have the advantage that you have had, end quote. Elizabeth Wood told better off families during their evictions, but the agency had difficulty finding other white tenants to replace those leaving the Cabrini row houses. The CHA had upped the quota of black residents allowed at the lower rise development, though only slightly, and it submitted to the demands of other occupants and kept sections of the row houses solidly white. Wood even had the agency print up tens of thousands of applications for the Cabrini row houses and distribute them among potential white residents. Brochures featured white children playing in yards and on the swings outside low-rise apartments, a picture of suburban comforts at inner-city public housing costs. But the efforts weren't enough. Whites made up less than half the row house population by the early 50s. Units sat empty, while hundreds of black families who had passed the CHA screenings weren't considered for them. Amid a citywide housing shortage, Wood and Taylor found themselves defending a quota system that seemed unethical, if also necessary. Wood believed, not inaccurately, that there was a racial tipping point at which whites would view most inner city public housing as a subsidy meant solely, quote, for Negroes, end quote. By the start of the 1960s, white families occupied only 42 of the nearly 600 units in the Cabrini Row houses. The Butlers were eventually forced to leave their apartment in 1117 North Cleveland. Jerry and Curtis Mayfield formed a band with a couple of friends who made the journey to Chicago from Chattanooga, Tennessee. As the Roosters, they were performing at a talent show at Washburn Trade School when a promoter named Eddie Thomas heard them and promised he could make them into stars. Thomas explained that the group's name sounded too country. They settled on the impressions. Always leave an impression. In 1958, they recorded their first song on the South Side's record row. Butler had written the tune a couple of years earlier when he was a teenager gazing out his high-rise window a kid pining for idealized love. It had no hook and no real sing-along parts. Quote, a poem set to music, end quote, he'd say. Quote, for your precious love, end quote, reached number 11 on the Billboard charts. The young men played the Apollo Theater in New York and Butler received a royalty check for a couple hundred dollars. The CHA soon contacted the mother of Jerry, quote, the Iceman, end quote, Butler, saying the family's joint income exceeded the maximum allowance for public housing. The Butlers moved to a house on the south side. Curtis Mayfield stayed on in the Cabrini Row houses for several more years, selling cigars and office buildings in the loop before his own music career took off again and he could afford an apartment of his own in a new high-end complex just 10 blocks away. And we see in this, in this passage, in the beginning of this chapter, we see the... Uh, we see white flight and we see the residual effects that white flight has. And we see the historical uh, the historical connotations that white flight has. You see black people. You see that they kept black people who needed homes out of having homes. You've seen that they uh, when black people began to make a certain amount of money that they felt was too much, they would evict them out of the homes. These people were probably be, would have been people who could have helped to keep up with the conditions in the, the community and the culture of the of the uh, homes. Uh, we also seen that 
we also seen how they tried to propagandize that this these these homes were integrated or that everybody you know how many different people were living in harmony in these buildings when in reality it was majority of black people that were living in these buildings that were living in these homes we've seen how they took move Monday union uh removed this apprenticeship program out of the school you've seen how the priest began to advertise his school as a uh, uh, a segregated white alternative for children, which, you know, would, would mean that more children would pull out of the public school and go to that private school, which would lead to uh, less money being uh, put into the public school, which would also lead to less opportunities for uh, networking and connecting with people from different walks of life at the public school. And so you begin to see how uh, and you see the demographics of the the public housing begin to become majority black as these white suburbs are being created. And you see people who are making money moving to these white suburbs, uh, these white suburbs, which black people do not have the option or the availability to move into. Uh, and we got to read a little bit about Curtis Mayfield. I don't know how many people know about Curtis Mayfield, but Curtis Mayfield makes some amazing music. So uh, we outside. Well, this one was recorded inside, but you know what I'm saying? We outside. New episode tomorrow. <laughs>